Let's uh, read again from uh, the New Testament, from the book of Acts in chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, this is the passage I want to look at for a few moments with you here this evening. It's Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over, to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So reads God's holy an infallible word. He will bless that public reading to all of our hearts, I'm sure. And now as we turn to it together. I'm off on my travels tomorrow, and uh, so I'm prepared for that. Let's see. Yes, I've got my passport with me. Though I don't really need that because I'm going to Aberystwyth, so that's fine. <laughs> But a few months ago, I did go to this place, Normandy. Now, um, don't ask me about the, to show you my photos, because I'll keep you here till, till, till midnight. I did need the passport for that particular trip. But that's a part of the world I've always been fascinated by. I always wanted to visit, to see particularly those D-Day sites, you know, Omaha Beach and, and so on. You might be familiar with those. But we also did little detours to uh, see the Bayeux Tapestry. Ever seen that? It's still there. Hundreds, nearly a thousand years later. Almost in perfect condition on display in Bayeux. And a place called Mont Saint-Michel. Ever been there? What an amazing place that is. Anyway, I won't go into, into all of that. But D-Day was the main event, wasn't it, going to Normandy. 
In Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul was a great traveler. Of course he was. We read the book of the Acts. We never see him going off on holiday, but we often see him going on his missionary journeys. Here he is on his second main missionary journey. Paul, contrary to popular opinion, was not a lone ranger. He always went with companions. He always took his, his, his band of fellow missionaries with him. And Acts chapter 16 is one of the great turning points in the Bible and in human history. This is another D-Day. Even greater, I mean that was a great one, wasn't it? The Allies breaking through into Europe to end the Second World War. That was a D-Day. But this, I think, even greater. Because this now is the gospel breaking through into Europe. For the first time. What an amazing event this is. And uh, I do have a title for this message tonight. I've obviously pinched it from someone. You might be familiar with it. Um, A narrative of a surprising conversion. And we certainly see that this story is full of surprises because the Lord often is, isn't he? His ways are far above ours. And when he's at work, often there is that sense of surprise, of delight, sometimes of shock. There certainly should be awe. And all of those things are in this passage. First of all, there's the context, which is very uh, surprising. Do you mind if I just take it? little bit of water. This, this is a surprising context, verses 6 to 10. And there's a big surprise here for Paul because he actually didn't want to go over there to Macedonia. He wanted to go over there to Asia, he and his fellow missionaries. And uh, the big surprise is that all, although that seemed absolutely logical, absolutely sensible, it seemed this is the right thing to do, based on past experience, the Lord stopped them doing it. It says that in the text, verses 6 and 7. It says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit, verse 6. And they tried to go into Bithynia, which is in Asia, But the Spirit did not permit them. They wanted to go to Asia, modern-day Turkey. But uh, the Lord said no. Have you ever had that experience, by the way? You're thinking about something. You're convinced it's the right thing. You've spoken to all your pals. Yes, we're going to go. Come on, let's go. And the next thing you know, you stop dead in your tracks. And you have to conclude and accept it's the Lord who's closing that door. Now, how he did it, we don't quite know. Was it a prophetic word? Was it a dream at night or a vision? That'll come in a moment. Was it some kind of providence? Maybe even a breakdown of someone's health? Or We don't know. People speculate. 
But this is a big surprise. No one was expecting that, least of all Paul. But then it does get even more surprising. Look at verse 9. Because now we do have a vision appearing to Paul in the night. And we have this man of Macedonia. Macedonia, by the way, I'm sure you know, is in the equivalent is modern-day Greece. So you've got the continent of Asia over here, Turkey and all of that. And and obviously the gospel came originally from... uh, Uh, from Israel, and that seems to be the logical way to go. But oh no, we're going to Europe, the Lord says. And he gives him this vision, this man from Greece. And by one step after another, I mean, this must have taken some time, and it wasn't easy to change all your plans, to change gear radically, to go to somewhere you've never been before, know hardly anything about. This was a big thing. But by one means and another, the Lord is going to have them where he wants them to be in the great Roman colony of Philippi, the city, which is the heart of that great Roman colony. We know a lot about Philippi as one of the great cities of the ancient world. We know it was a predominantly Gentile city. But isn't it interesting in the story as it unfolds that as Paul did in most places, he wants first of all to find some of his fellow countrymen or fellow believers, in other words, Jewish people. So he always expects to find, he always looks to find, and he often does find a group of Jews because that was his mindset. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he said, For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always starts with the Jews. But surprise, surprise, here's another surprise. In this place, there's no synagogue. You probably know that you had to have ten men, ten Jewish men to start a proper synagogue. Sorry about that, ladies. It was a bit different back then. And there, there apparently are no men. But what do we find? Verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So there's no men, but there's a bunch of spiritual committed women, most of them Jews, And maybe eventually a synagogue will be built on this place. Who knows? When I think of that little picture there, that does strike me. That is so typical of most evangelical churches I know in London today. A group of committed spiritual women, very few men. And we might look out at a congregation like that and say, how unpromising that I've come all this way for that Ah, but in this very place, verse 14, is an extraordinary lady called Lydia. It takes your breath away, doesn't it, when you begin to join up the dots. What a surprising context is all of this, verses 6 to 10. 
Which brings us then to the surprising convert or the surprising conversion. Do you remember that was my title, a narrative? It's a story, it's a history, it's an unfolding of what God is doing through his people. And right at the heart of it, certainly to begin with, there's a lot more to be said as the story unfolds, but is this surprising conversion. Again, full of surprises when you think where she's from. Where is she from? Verse 14, where is she from? All the answers are in the Bible. This isn't a trick question. She's from a place called Thyatira. And have a guess where Thyatira is. It's in Asia. And Lydia might even be a generic name. She's the the lady from Lydia, because that's the name of a region in Thyatira, which is in Asia. She's not not a European. She's not a Greek, this lady. So they were were all stirred up. We've got to go to Asia. We've got to go to Asia. No, Paul, you're not going to go to Asia. This woman is going to go to Asia. As we'll see in a moment, uniquely placed, uniquely gifted to reach her own people. Can you see that, Paul? Can you accept that, Paul? So you were kind of, you weren't totally wrong. But the way I'm going to do it is infinitely better. That's what the Lord is showing him here. So she is a Thyatiran from, probably from this place called Lydia. And that's how she got her name. That's surprising. In in a (laughs) almost a humorous kind of way when you think about it. Then think of the surprise of what she does. Um, In my version here, verse 14, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. This lady is some kind of entrepreneur. She's some kind of businesswoman. Very, very unusual in those days. And then religiously, this woman is very surprising. She's with a group of women who are praying. It says, again in my version, that she is uh, one who worshipped God. Now that's a technical phrase for someone who's not a Jew, but kind of becomes a sort of a Jew, a kind of semi-detached Jew, if you like. A Gentile proselyte. A God-fearer, not a fully-fledged member of God's covenant people, but this we know about this woman. She's a spiritual woman. She's committed. I get the impression she's a good woman. She has firm beliefs and certain practices. She's in a prayer meeting. But the key thing for our purposes tonight, she is not... Yet, a Christian. And to use one of the greatest words in the Bible, which will pop up later, it's there in the chapter, in verse 31, although applied to a very different person, very different type of person, but we can apply it to this woman, because we can apply it to everybody. Her greatest need, and the greatest word that describes what God can do to meet our greatest need. Verse 31, she is not yet Saved. What must I do to be saved? And perhaps this, perhaps this is almost the biggest shock of all that we see here. 
She had all of this going for her. She is a good woman. She's a religious person. She prays. She has certain growing, a growing understanding of the God of the universe, the God of Israel. She's got so much going for her, but all of that doesn't get you to heaven, my friend. And so God, in his great love and good providence, he's arranging all of this on a vast canvas of history and geography and everything that's going on here. He arranges all of this so that this woman will go to heaven one day, will be with the Lord in glory one day. And before that, she will become the first convert in Europe and she'll become the first member of the Philippian church. Everything is being set up for the sake of this one precious soul. Because everything is set up to do precisely that, to fulfill our Lord's purpose when he said, I will build my church. Everything, everything in our lives, everything in human history, it's all being set up with that goal in view. And it's good to remember that, my friends, because we live in strange days. We live in scary times. And there are good things always happening, of course. They don't get reported so much in the news. But there are these crazy, amazing things that are happening all around us. Again, I'm not wanting to be political, but, you know, people are getting very upset. They have been about Brexit, about Donald Trump, about... The, mi- the migration crisis, about the economic collapse, and so we could go on. Everything you read in your newspaper today, my friend, it's all being set up by Almighty God to fulfill this purpose. I will build my church. Now, how does that happen specifically? That's the, that's the context. That's the, the stage, the theater, as it were. How specifically and personally does that happen? How does someone become a Christian? And we get right to the heart of the matter now. Look at verse 14 again. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The things spoken by Paul. In other words, this is how someone becomes a Christian. You must be exposed to the gospel, the message, the good news, which presumably she'd never heard before. What are some of the things that make up that That good news. Well, he would have told her of a glorious person. The man who is God. I love that. I love your posters outside on the side of the the building. And this time, because I came in relative light, I could see them very clearly. And one of them says, uh, 
fully man and fully God. That's, that's right, the person at the heart of the gospel. Every week on this little table on King Street, we have people coming up to us, mostly Muslims, saying, well, who is Jesus? Do, do you believe he's a man? Yes. Well, who is he praying to then? What do you mean? Well, if, he's a, if you say he's also God, I do. Well, how can he be a man and also be God? I said, I, I don't know. I can't fully explain that to you. That's a, called a mystery. Have you read the Bible? And so we're into it. We're into the conversation. That's always the issue. The person of Christ. Christ Jesus. Christ the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prophesied One. Jesus. A real living man like you and like me and yet perfect. Born of a virgin. She would have heard so much about the person this wonderful person. She would have heard so much about his amazing passion, by which I don't mean his compassion, which is amazing, but his passion, his sufferings, his death on the cross. Yes, there was a virgin birth. Yes, he was the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. Yes, he did mighty miracles unlike anybody else, but it was the cross. It was the death. It was the blood of this Mighty, wonderful person. His passion. That's what they, they had to hear. That's what she had to hear. And when we talk to people, may God give us that spirit that the Apostle Paul had on another occasion when he said, I determined not to know anything else amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The person, the passion. And I'm sure she heard about the power the unique, glorious power of his resurrection. There's nothing like that in any other religion, in any other philosophy. He's risen. He's alive. Um, I drove here today and almost went past the front door of the British Museum. And every time I go in there, I'd love to go into the Greco-Roman room I mean, it's thrilling, the stuff they've got in there. And it's all about power, the power of beauty, the greatest art the world's ever seen, the power of philosophy, the greatest thinkers who've ever lived with their, with their wisdom and their stoicism and their whatever. And the greatest empire, certainly up to that point in human history, there's a wonderful big statue of Alexander the Great in there. These people were powerful, they had great power. But the one thing they didn't have power over the one thing they didn't have an answer to, and that was the fear of death and the grave. They had no clue about what comes after, after death. And they were terrified by it. And they would do a a everything in their power to, 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 to avoid the conversation or to give uh, you know meditations on it, which really end up saying we're in despair we haven't got the answer we haven't got the power of course not they had many many great things and I applaud so much of what they had but the apostle Paul went to them into that Greco-Roman world and that's where we are here in Philippi with a message of power the mighty resurrection the unique power of God in the Lord Jesus Christ that can destroy the works of the devil, can destroy death, can kill death, 
He did it in his death. And how do we know? Because he's alive. And we can know him today. These were the things that Paul preached. Have you heard these things, my friend? I would think you probably do and have in your life. Maybe from little children. Maybe you've been in this church for years. And you know these things. And that's good. That's essential. We need to hear. We need to know. But this is more than just a story. This is a message with a punchline, with a challenge, which comes to us and says, yeah, you know these things. What are you going to do with this message? How will you personally respond? You must, if you are to know the power of God in life and in death. Later in, that, in this chapter, like I said, verse 31 such a different story, such a different person. I'm not going to go into it now. But the story is, the, the question is asked there, what must I do to be saved? And the answer comes back, verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. There must be this personal response. There must be faith. You must trust him, turn to him. Ask him, pray to him. There must be repentance. You must be prepared to turn your back on your old life. And then, having received that new life in Christ, you've got to step forward and obey what he says. And what's the first thing on the agenda? Verse 15, when she and her household were were baptized, they were baptized. That's the outer sign of the inner reality. But don't miss this little point, my friend. I'm drawing to a close now. Don't miss this little point before I come to my final heading, which is perhaps the most surprising, shocking thing of all that we're told here at the end of verse 14. It's interesting how the writer Luke puts it. He doesn't say, and she gave her heart to the Lord. It doesn't say that Paul said to her, Give, give your heart to the Lord. We speak in those terms. No, what does it say? The Lord hope opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The only way there can be a fitting response to the glory and the grace of God in Christ. There must be a divine intervention the Lord must step in he must touch and transform and change us from the inside out again we learn so much from just a few little words there we learn that true Christianity where does it come from it doesn't come from Jerusalem it doesn't come from Rome it doesn't come from London it doesn't come from Aberystwyth True Christianity comes from heaven. It comes from God. And how does he come to us? He comes to us through, through the message, through the messenger, through the apostles, through the missionaries, through the ministry, through me speaking to you tonight, talking to you about these things, this message, this good news. 
That's how the Lord comes to us. And how do we know that he's not only come to us, but he's come into us. And we really are saved and we really are changed on the inside. We know that because that new life in us flows out of us. She was baptized. There's a bit of evidence for you. And look what she says at the end, verse 15. If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And the last time we see her in verse 40, what's she doing? She's exercising hospitality. She's showing love to these early missionaries. They're in her house. And then they say goodbye and they move on. We never hear of Lydia again. What a surprising conversion. What a surprising convert. And as I've touched on already, and we just close with this, we've more or less said it, verse 15, the surprising consequences. There's baptism, as we've said. Her heart has been opened. Her life has been opened. So her home is opened. That's what she does. If you love the Lord then you will love his people. That's what we are seeing here. And that is still such a miracle, such a mystery, such a surprising thing in Great Britain today when that happens. And we need it to happen. We live in a world of such desperate loneliness. Were you on Oxford Street last week when those riots were taking place, the the TikTok riots Come down and join the riots. Let's do some looting. Let's get some, let's get some free iPhones and some free microwaves. That's the kind of society we're in today, my friend. What a contrast. How surprising. Someone who's not just talking about spirituality or even inner transformation. This is somebody being changed. And then people are changed, and then society changes, and then there's hospitality, and then there's fellowship, and then there's sharing, and then there's caring. And the church is born there in Philippi on on that basis. How desperately we need that, my friends, still in in our society today. I was reminded of this recently when I was asked to go and speak at... uh, a, 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 a lovely time of celebration. I've got, uh, I might surprise you this, but I've got some very, very dear Indian friends. Uh, there's about 50 of them there that particular day, and they wanted to celebrate the 18th birthday of their daughter called Lydia. So we, we were there in the garden. There was about 50 of us there, and they asked me to speak, and I gave a message, not quite this one, but something along these lines. And then we ate, and of course we had curry with everything, which thankfully I like. And it reminded me of a series of Bible studies that I took with this group, lovely, lovely group of very sincere, devout Indian friends. A few years ago we went through different passages of the New Testament, and we looked at Acts chapter 2, and we were looking at the subject of what is fellowship. And we saw how these people met together. We saw how these people greeted one another, loved each other. They spent time together. They shared meals together. They prayed together. And and we see something of that here with Lydia, don't we? 
And I never forget one of the ladies getting up in the meeting and she said, um, she said, Hi, I have learned more about fellowship in this meeting than I've ever known before, she said. And I now understand what real biblical fellowship is all about. It's about meeting, greeting, and eating. <laughs> and I thought, you got it. That's what Acts chapter 2 is saying. At least it's a major part of it. And when someone is really changed, really transformed, their heart is opened by the Lord. Their life is opened. They'll open their home and open their arms and take people, take people in and take them to their hearts as Lydia did. Oh, there are wonderful and surprising consequences when somebody is truly converted. So my friends, have you been surprised? Are the people around you surprised to see in you the power of the grace of God in your life?